Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I'm posting this podcast on Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. I'm sharing the day and the date because the days seem to be blurring over these past few weeks. On Friday, March 27th, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. In this limited series, I am reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners, asking two questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare? And how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing daily. So in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. In this episode, we are speaking to a colleague of mine at Atrium Health, Dr. Ifi Osunko. Dr. Ifi, as her patients call her, is the founder and director of the Sickle Cell Disease Enterprise at the Levine Cancer Institute at Atrium Health. She's a professor of medicine at Atrium and a clinical associate professor at the UNC Chapel Hill. Dr. Ifi earned her MD from the University of Nigeria, a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins University, and she completed a pediatric residency at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, followed by a pediatric hematology oncology fellowship at Columbia University. Dr. Asunko has dedicated her career to providing equitable, comprehensive, compassionate, and evidence-based care for individuals living with sickle cell disease. She serves on numerous national committees for the American Society of Hematology and is the editor-in-chief of Hematology News. My friends, this interview came about in an unusual and unplanned way. I was literally catching up with Dr. Ify by phone the other day, and when she told me what she was doing for her patients, I asked if I could record our conversation. I felt compelled to share this dialogue with you because Dr. Ify is offering three humanistic services that, in my opinion, all primary care and all specialty care providers could and should be offering to their patients. One could argue that these services could have been delivered before the COVID-19 pandemic as a part of routine regular care management, but they're especially important now in this era. They're important because they directly address the issues of social isolation, loneliness, and anxiety that people with chronic medical conditions are especially susceptible to. They're important because they address the concrete issues of chronic disease management, which are being disproportionately affected by the social distancing and sheltering in place public health efforts. There's no question that people with chronic medical conditions and people who are socioeconomically vulnerable are impacted upon much more severely than others in this COVID-19 era. I'm posting this interview with the intention and the hope that providers will take a lesson from Dr. Ify and adopt these and other similar offerings for their patients, and that healthcare systems across the country will support providers with resources. I have known Dr. Ify for a number of years. She's a wonderful physician, a dedicated public health agent, and a humble leader servant. She's incredibly devoted to her patients and is an exemplary role model. So without further ado, my colleague, Dr. Ify. So, Ify, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. I know you're incredibly busy right now. 
And before we jump in with the questions, could you share with the audience a little bit about yourself and also what you do at Atrium Health? Well, thank you so much, Zev. My name is Ife Ngwa a.k.a. Dr. Ife. And I'm actually a pediatric hematologist who's masquerading as an adult sickle cell provider at the Levine Cancer Institute at Atrium Health. And I've been here for six plus years. I came to help them build a comprehensive sickle cell disease program for the system, looking at it from a population health perspective. Part of what I focus on is not just individual one-on-one care, but looking at the entire 1,400 adults and 400 children in the system with sickle cell disease and trying to stratify their their risk status to determine what do people need to stay as healthy as possible and to live as long as possible with minimum acute utilization and maximum chronic disease management. Doctor, if you're really set up as a population health care division, if you will. That's correct. You know, I've never asked you this, but are there other divisions like yours across the country? Is this a common approach to sickle cell disease? it's evolving. A lot of sickle cell programs are smaller, very focused on their small 200, 300 patients, and they do a really good job with managing their their individual cohort. But they don't have the bandwidth or the institutional support to manage the population as a whole. So, you know, I think there's a model in South Carolina that was there for a while, and then the person moved to Alabama Um, So several of us are beginning to look at sickle cell disease, not just the people who come to my clinic, but the people who interface with my healthcare system. So I may see 500 of these 1,500 patients in my clinic, but for every sickle cell touch point to any acute care or any outpatient care, we need to figure out how to get them plugged into the right type of care. And looking at it from not just what they need from a sickle cell point of view, but primary care, psychosocial support care, care coordination, case management, Um, Because at the end of the day, it's not just my numbers in my clinical database, but are they, as a population, surviving and thriving with their condition? And no one person has all the capacity to take care of everybody. So I have to borrow and get support from other doctors, other hematologists, other primary care providers, other, you know, federally qualified health centers in the community, people within Atrium Health and outside of Atrium Health. I work with everybody and anybody. And I'm probably like more like a super consultant. So I kind of help guide you to help take care of the lower risk patients. And then I really focus on the higher risk patients in my particular clinic. That way everybody gets something. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sickle cell is a chronic condition and it's a complex chronic condition as you were just uh, you know, alluding to. It takes a team, a village of providers to really care for these patients. And again, different levels of chronicity and severity With the 500 patients that you are focusing on intensely, how much utilization would you say on average are you seeing in terms of ED visits per year or hospitalizations per year? Because it's pretty intense utilization. Yeah. So when you average out the entire population of sickle cell patients, most, if you look at what do I expect for an average patient, it's about two to three ER visits in a year. When you break them down by risk category, right, my high risk patients who fall into my tier three they average about six plus ER visits in a year. So that 500 patients will be patients who are interfacing with acute care six or plus times in a year. I've had patients who, I have one guy I just saw on Monday, he had 57 ER visits last year. 57? 57. I had a 25-year-old who had 79 ER visits in 2019. Um, The average cost of my top 20 patients in terms of their acute care utilization was $20 million. 
with one person racking up $2 million in healthcare costs in one year. And she was in her 30s. And so it can be pretty intense. You know, you have really, really super high utilizers. You have the moderate utilizers. And then you have some people who may not may go a year or two without an acute care visit. But when you lump them all together, you can't really get a good picture. So you have to kind of divide them up and focus on what you're going to do for those who are super high utilizers. They have a different kind of trajectory of treatment compared to those who are actually doing very well. They may need a little bit of touch points from me, but they can be fine seeing their primary care doctor or their local hematologist and being on a chronic treatment plan and they do well. Those that are in the ER three, four times a week, they need a little bit more of a nuanced touch. And a lot of it has to do with mental health, social determinants of health, and then multiple chronic organ involvement. And if you only treat their sickle cell disease and don't treat those other things, you will never you know, bring down their um, uh, utilization to where it needs to be. And they tend to not do very well. Well, you know, I think that point is so important because, you know, sickle cell is a really classic example of chronic condition or chronic disease. And I don't believe that most understand how significant the impact of these so-called social determinants of health, whether it be income, housing, food, transportation, social isolation, how much of an impact that has on the progression and severity of the chronic disease and the utilization. And so I'd love for you to respond to that and share that perspective. So there was a recent article that came out, um, I think it was either early this year or late last year, that talked about the impact of emotional distress on sickle cell disease pain. And so they kind of set up in a, in a laboratory model where they looked at human adults with sickle cell disease and they gave them a trigger. They show you a stressful event and then they see what happens to your pain threshold and your pain response. So there is data that suggests that emotional distress, mental health issues, psychosocial distress actually triggers the physiological mechanisms that trigger you to have a pain crisis. And then that can progress to acute chest syndrome, and then you end up in the hospital. So there's a biological pathway that goes from your social determinants to your disease activation. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think, oh, you know, you're just a little bit depressed and anxious, and that's a separate diagnosis compared to your sickle cell disease severity. But when I classify my patients in terms of tiers, my tier three patients, most of them have a comorbid mental health diagnosis. Most of them have some sort of psychological or psychosocial distress factor, you know, either, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome, emotional abuse, physical abuse, um, historical um, trauma as a child. You know, they have all these things that kind of help feed the cycle of acute exacerbation of their disease. And you can't treat the one without the other, right? I realize if I treat your sickle cell disease, I put you on transfusions, I give you hydroxyurea, which is standard of care, you don't get better unless I treat your emotional distress and your psychological and social distress. And so we have a case manager in our program who focuses on our high utilizers and our high, our high risk patients. And she, you know, she calls them every week, sometimes every other day. You know, sometimes she calls them, you know, sometimes she sends a ride to their house, sends out a case worker to their house. We work with the community-based organization that, you know, I do the medical piece and then they do the community piece. They meet up with them at the CBO, the community-based organization office, or they go to their house to see, do you have like roaches? Do you have food? Do you have a place to stay tonight? Are you living in your car? These are all things that if you don't ask about them, you will be putting treatments into a patient that is not going to respond. And you think that they're just biologically non-responsive, but a lot of it is psychosocial um, factors. That is brilliant. Thank you for explaining it that way and, and bringing in the science behind it. 
that really kind of leads to the kind of moment in time we are right now. Obviously, we're in the midst of this COVID-19 epidemic, and what you were talking about was pre-COVID, and now we're in this moment in time where the emotional stressors are significant for everyone, and particularly for those with chronic medical conditions. And it's not just the anxiety and the stress, but it's also the impact that COVID-19 is having on, in fact, those social determinants of health, such as you know, food security. So I'm just wondering, in terms of what you're seeing, in terms of how COVID-19 is impacting people with chronic conditions, how are you seeing that? And it's complicated. So before COVID, we believe that the more frequent touch points allows you to identify and then address their physical and psychosocial and social determinant issues that trigger their medical complications and comorbidities, right? Now we have COVID and the, the message is social distancing, stay away from, you know, healthcare touch points because you're going to get an infection if you're in the ER, you know, and then that keeps them from the resources and the touch points that helps stabilize your disease. It's kind of like a counterintuitive uh, thing, right? So what was helping you stay healthy, we're saying don't access those things anymore. Right? right. So, right. of who doesn't have a steady way of getting food, you come to the clinic, you get your food vouchers, you get your, your bus card, you get your referrals to the food pantry and social networks in the community. And then now I'm saying don't come. So how do you get those resources if you can't come and see us in clinic? We didn't have a very robust um, tele- telehealth portfolio that was recognized by the system. And we did a lot of phone support, but it wasn't a measurable tool for the program. We did it because it was the right thing to do, right? And now with COVID, COVID has triggered an explosion of telehealth support. So now we're being told absolutely reach out to them by phone. And it was like the practice exploded. So we've been calling people, but now we're calling them even more. You know, you don't have a thermometer, you don't have food for your children, your house has no heat. We wouldn't have found that out if we didn't make those phone calls, because normally we put them to come to clinic and they tell us, and we can kind of deploy resources to them that way. The other thing that has happened is the source of getting uh, support for these social needs has also diminished. So the food pantries are closing down because they have to socially isolate, right? The places where they normally would go for a transportation voucher or a referral to SSI or those type of resources are no longer open. And so they can't get their insurance reviewed. They can't get their Medicaid or SSI forms um, submitted. So we're seeing a lot of those issues bubble up to the surface. And at the same time, they're not getting their medical needs met because they can't come into healthcare like they normally would. And and I think that the good thing that has come out of the COVID pandemic is that we now have the liberty to utilize every electronic tool necessary to take care of these patients. Hmm. So the virtual phone touch points and then the telemedicine visits are being used by not just the physicians, but NPs and PAs, the case manager, the educator, our social worker, our therapist, everybody can now touch with the patients in a virtual manner. And I, they really appreciate it. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from our patients. You know, thank you so much for reaching out to me. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you so much for following up on XYZ or giving me the information I need. We've also tried to do some public education of the, for the patients using, you know, webcasting. So we put them all, you know, they all sign up for a Zoom educational event. They can do, have their questions answered. They can interact with each other. So that kind of helps with the isolation piece. We did one a couple of weeks ago. We had 69 patients on the webcast. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to know, what do I do if I have pain? You know, what do I do if I need X, Y, and Z? And we were able to direct them to the HM Health portal, 
to the electronic ways of communicating with the team so that they don't feel that they're out of the loop of how to get what they need, even with the medication refills, et cetera. They can still reach us by phone or by the My HM Health, um, My HM Health app, and we can kind of respond to them in real time to give them what they need to kind of stay healthy. I love everything you're doing. It just seems like it's the core of, of primary preventive care. It's so proactive. So are you opening it up and people are asking questions or do you have some sort of thing you're saying at the start or how do you structure that? Pre-COVID-19, we would have every other month education events for our patients because we believe that if you have an educated patient, if they know better, they do better. A lot of what, they, what happens to them, they don't understand how to take the medication or why they should not do X, Y, Z. And so they end up taking risks that could be avoided. So we educate them about you know, how to use your pain medication, when to go to the doctor, which doctor to go to, why you should be on this medicine or that medication. So that's been our traditional practice. But with COVID-19, they can't come to us. And so we set up a Zoom education event where I did my presentation for 20 minutes, then I opened up for a question and answer, and they had a lot of questions. Um, they had a lot of questions. The second one we did was last week, and they actually showed themselves on video. So the first one was more telephonic. And then the second one, you know, just show me what you look like. You know, people in the bedrooms or with their pajamas on or their scarves on, but they could see each other and also see me. And um, it was very, it was very interactive. It had a lot of questions and some of the patients would answer each other's questions. So in a way, it was a group educational event with me as a moderator, kind of like setting the stage, but they learned from each other and also from the healthcare team as well. Oh my God, that's brilliant. It's brilliant because it's so powerful in using the voice of the patient, if you will, and people helping each other, learning from each other, the empathy that, you know, really only one patient can give to another experiencing the same sort of condition. And I guess what I'm wondering to be just very blunt about it is why isn't every primary care doctor doing this? (laughs) No, no, you're laughing. Why? So I have a public health background. I did my MPH at Hopkins in 1996. And I grew up in Nigeria. And in Nigeria, healthcare is not like in America where you have an ER and a primary care doctor. You go to the general, you know, community health center. And, you know, if you're sick, you got to pray. If you have the money to go to the hospital, then you go to the hospital. My mom was a nurse. And I learned about public health and public education from a very young age. And I realized that a lot of the disparities in healthcare that I see with my population, it has a lot to do with lack of public health education. You can stay healthy if you understand what you need to do to stay healthy, right? And um, I have a niche population, and I guess because of my background, I design my practice to have a public health perspective, population health management, and then I do the individualized care that we do so well in America. I think we're so good at the one-on-one care in this country, but we don't have a public health perspective to all care. You know, and I think it may be just the way the healthcare system is designed and how things are reimbursed. You know, I don't get paid by my number of visits. I get paid by how well my patients do. Well, I get a salary. But my goal is to make sure that they're all doing well. So it's whatever tools I need and whatever tools I can use, borrow or leverage to help them do well, not just the one-on-one visits. And so I kind of, my whole career has been about how can I help the most, right, with the limited resources that you have. And one-on-one care is great for the few who can actually get to it, but many people can't get to see me every month like I want them to. And I have to figure out creative ways of getting to them what they need. And so I think in primary care, one, there's a lot of patients. Two, the pressure on this, that the system puts on you to do healthcare a certain kind of way because of reimbursement 
limits how we can do the public health piece. And now I have a team, so I don't do all the education myself. I have an educator, I have a case manager, I have a patient advocate on my team who's a staff member who has sickle cell disease. She's 64 tomorrow, and she's gonna do the next session with the patients and say, hey, I have sickle cell disease, I work full time, this is what I do to take care of myself, what questions do you have for me and how can I help you become an activated patient to kind of help yourself do well? So you kind of try to find different ways. And then I also loop with the community-based organizations and then let them do their part. You know, we can do everything in healthcare, but if we partner with other people, they can bring in their expertise from a community-based organization perspective. We can bring the medical piece. I can have my advocate bring her piece. The educator will bring their piece, case management. And then we can pull that together and support the patients in an optimal way. But no one person can do it all, you know, and no one person has all the expertise. So kind of sharing your expertise to help the patient population is a model that we've been trying to um, um, follow. It's a great model. So you laughed a moment ago, and let me make this argument and hear what you think about it. I think that, and I'm not making this up, I heard this from physician and executive. Uh, we have had the medical mindset in the past, as you, I think, we're, we're pointing out, you actually have had a public health mindset. And I guess what I'm thinking is that in part because of the COVID-19 acceleration of change, and not that it was the cause, but I think it is an accelerant of what was coming and happening anyway. But because of that, I think we actually need to take your approach in all of primary care. And you're absolutely right. Not everyone can get the one-on-one -on -one care and can pay for that one-on-one -on -one care. But even in the, the average primary care situation, particularly now, if a physician has a panel of 1,500 to 2,000 in that range, let's say, they're not going to be able to get to everyone. And there are people who need in their panel what you're giving your patients who need, especially now in this COVID era, who are socially isolated and will be for weeks, if not months, uh, who are experiencing stresses, both you know relational, emotional, mental, and physical stresses and will be for months, if not longer. And I think the idea of every primary care doctor, I'm just going to say it, and you tell me if you disagree, I think every primary care doctor should immediately do what you're doing, which is opening up Zoom sessions or using some other platform where their patients can get on. And I can't imagine that they won't have dozens and dozens of patients each visit wanting to just see their doctor, to be heard, to be seen, to be amongst other people who have chronic conditions, or et cetera, I just think it should be standard of care now. So I'm putting it out there. And I want you to push back on me if you disagree. I love the idea that every provider, it doesn't just have to be primary care providers, right? That every mm -hmm. provider will have a component of their practice that is a group outreach where you can, because they trust me as their doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to see me, but I can't see 1,500 people in a year, right? Right. No. I get to the 10, one, the 500 person in the years or now, but if they see you on a, a Zoom platform or some sort of virtual group meeting, just that touch point is enough to get them through to whenever they're going to get to see you. And they'll work with whoever is in your chain of uh, support to be able to do well. I, th I think it should be universally available. I agree. I absolutely agree. Now, the pushback is going to be, who's going to pay for that? Is it reimbursable? Is it a sustainable practice to keep the revenue stream going, right? But is it a need? Absolutely. You know, I remember when I was in, in um, doing my internship, we would have, for OBGYN clinic, we would have a group meeting in the waiting room. The nurse educator would do the teaching of all the pregnant women 
at the same time. You know, your prenatal vitamins, you know, signs of labor, you know, look for pedal edema, what to worry about, you know, the baby's not moving. It was a group session. There's a lot of singing and dancing because this is Africa, right? This is Nigeria. And then they do all that. And then you go in to see your OB, right? One OB mm -hmm. cannot do all of that for every single. You work about 300 patients in a day. There is no way you can do that teaching for every single patient, right? And so doing it as a group gets the message across. And then the patients learn from each other. The older ones can help mentor the younger ones. You can moderate the interaction so that no false information is passed along. You can kind of guide and correct and kind of, um, you know, that they can support each other, take the pressure off of the provider, right? And let mm -hmm. people support each other under guidance. I think it's a fabulous idea. I think if we can figure out a way to pay for it and allow mm -hmm. it to sustain in healthcare, that it's definitely the way to go. Because if you think about it, with diabetes, right? Mm -hmm. Writing a prescription for your medication is not enough to get you to do better. But when people yeah. who have diabetes get together, they support each other on getting to that A1C goal, right? The whole thing about mm -hmm. peer mentoring and peer support has been proven to be positive in not just diabetes, but asthma, um, quit smoking, um, substance use disorder, and the sickle cell disease. We actually have a grant right now looking at peer mentoring for young adults moving from pediatric to adult care. And the idea is that if you have a mentor who's kind of cheering you along, you won't spend so much time in the emergency room. Right, because there's been models where they've done this for cystic fibrosis, for kidney disease, for um, renal transplants, and from other for other diseases where if you've had the disease and you've gone through it, you can help the 21 year old who's going through it now to kind of, you know, you can do it. You know, let me cheer you on as you mm -hmm. go along, and you know, and let me support you through this whole journey. So it definitely mm -hmm. is a model that I will support, and I think is going to be very effective. The devil's in the details of how it's going to work out financially for healthcare and for providers mm -hmm. and the healthcare system, but the patients need it. I think that the one good thing about the COVID pandemic is it's bringing this to the to the forefront, that it needs to be reconsidered as a priority to improve overall health of our population, and not just to get us through COVID nineteen. Yeah, and I think we could get into the details of payment, but even if physicians started doing this once a week for an hour, and to your point, it doesn't have to be the doctor, right? It's a team event, so the doctor could be on for, you know, part of it, and right, I pass mean, it on to your team, and then somebody on the team right. kind of runs it through. And then you can field questions as you're doing other stuff. There's official ways of doing it. I did a COVID-19 update for the patients. I said, you know, this is what you need to know about sickle cell disease and COVID-19. You know, and then my educator is now doing the follow-up on that. So I don't have to be on every single call. You know, I can set the stage and then have somebody else take the baton and run with it. Right. And I just want to say, this is not just primary care. Think about all the patients out there with cardiovascular disease, uh, heart disease, post-MIs, heart failure, arrhythmias. This is like a humanitarian effort to open up a Zoom. What if a cardiologist did a, a Zoom session with their patients and just said, okay, maybe it's all the patients. Maybe we're just going to have an arrhythmia session once a week or twice a week. Maybe we're going to have a heart failure session. Absolutely. And you know, maybe we'll have a hypertension or like you said, diabetes, or it can get very specific and segmented or it could be general. But again, the idea of being able to see your specialist to talk to them, to have other patients, to open up those, that question forum, you know, for the doctor to be able to say, instead of having to say, in terms of just efficiency, absolutely, for the specialist to be able to say once to 20 or 50 or 70 people. As opposed to repeating the same thing 50 times in a day. Right. right? And you're not sure you right. message across. And then there's a positive feedback loop of when you say it to 50 people, they echo it and then they say it to each other over and over again. And so they, it magnifies what you're saying by factors and factors and factors. And 
I think it's a wonderful idea and a model that should be followed. I really think it's, it's needed. And I think mm. if we go through this pandemic and we don't change how we're doing healthcare, then we would have lost a wonderful opportunity. And Dr. Ify, we're going to do this. You're going to be the teacher and teaching other doctors how to do this Zoom class, especially now in the COVID era, and it's going to last for weeks. And I've heard this from others. This is the moment in time where this is the worst case scenario for people with chronic conditions. Absolutely. Yep. Right? And then you layer on top of it, those who are vulnerable to the social determinants of health, which was a significant percentage of the population before, but now with the issue of employment, I mean, I just saw the statistic today that unprecedented rise, uh, 6.6 million people claimed unemployment. It like doubled in the last week or something. And it's just going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And so you add that on top of everything else. and, And again, it's disproportionately impacting in a negative way, those with chronic conditions, the elderly, and those who, you know, who are uh, vulnerable to social determinants of health. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, it can be used for, you know, managing your disease, but also prevention. So I think Mm -hmm. America has moved away from a preventative mentality, right? How can you prevent sleep apnea? How do you prevent obesity? How do you prevent, you know, hypertension? How do you prevent irritable bowel and chronic constipation and things that once you get, breeds more comorbidities and more comorbidities and more comorbidities. The other thing I wanted to touch upon, which you pointed out, is what you're doing differently now than you have in the past. The higher priority, the more vulnerable patients in your population, in your panel, are at this moment in time requiring you even more so to identify them, to figure out who are the sickest and most likely to end up in an emergency room or hospital or decompensate in some way. And I'm going to go through my list. I'm going to find those people. I'm going to identify them. I'm going to reach out to them and do a virtual visit. I'm going to talk about their chronic diseases, their medications, their social determinants of health. I just want you to say a word about that because I think that's the other imperative for all doctors at this point in time and all providers is to do that as well. So could you say what you're doing on that account? I, I wouldn't be a great acute care provider because I like to plan ahead. I like to forecast and kind of prevent disaster from happening down the lines. And so, you know, we know who our high-risk patients are. We have, we divide them into three tiers, tier one, tier two, tier three. The tier threes, a lot of acute care visits, high-dose opioid use, multiple organ involvement between kidney and lung and heart, psychiatric diagnosis. We know who they are. And during, once this whole COVID-19 pandemic began to become a reality, we began to think, okay, as a team, Who are going to be the ones at highest risk of having a bad outcome? Well, those who go to the ER 50 times in a a year, if they don't have COVID when they get, they're going to get it when they get to the ER. So let's pick on those. Let's pick on the high, high high-risk patients who we want to keep out of acute care touch points if we can. We want to proactively make sure that they have all their routine meds and that they get the education. And they're also the ones who may not be able to make their appointment because of other social determinants. So we begin to call them. You know, I make calls on Saturday and on a Sunday. I just called the patient before I got on this call, you know, who lives in Kernersville to make sure that I reach him to kind of walk through with him what you can do if you have a pain episode. What you shouldn't do is run to the ER, but, you know, sign up and call me through my Carolinas, you know, call the PCL line. When you call the PCL line, it's going to come to the sickle cell providers on call, not to the general heme coverage person. Somebody who knows you and knows your story and who can kind of work with you by phone or by telemedicine to manage your acute exacerbation. And so we've tried to be very proactive in doing that. And it's been extremely positive. The first day we did it, I worked with a lady for three days straight to keep her out of the ER. And it worked. 
and she would have been in the ER with multiple comorbidities, including sickle cell disease, and probably not have been taken care of on time and end up with a bad outcome. And so, you know, my whole team is sensitized to this. And so they're like, oh, we got to call this person because they, you know, they haven't been to us in about a month. You know, they're high risk. Should we call them? Should we, you know, set them up for a virtual visit? So the whole team is really sensitized to who are our high risk patients? Who are the ones that we worry most about when there's no COVID-19? Let's kind of grab a hold of them and wrap our arms around them now that there's COVID-19 to keep them as safe as possible. And I think that every panel of practice should think about their patients that way. You know, touch everybody, but focus on the ones who are at highest risk. And you should know who they are in your practice. You know, I know who they are. You know, the ones who have mental illness. I'm, I have made more BHI referrals, behavioral health intervention referrals in the past two weeks than I've made all year. And the patients are loving it. They're like, oh, I can't come in and see the therapist here, but can I do a behavioral health visit by phone? I'm like, Absolutely. You know, a patient has given me buy-in, can you please call them? And they're great about calling them back and doing their screening for depression, anxiety, and stress, and then working with them to kind of manage their emotions while we help them manage their medical complications. So I think that's something that um, I feel is, is the way of the future. We really need to think about being proactive as opposed to reactive. Um, once you have the person in the ER, it's almost like too late, right? Once they're there and they get, mm -hmm. they get that sick, it's like the train is going to end up leaving the station. So can we get the train to be in park and not be in motion, like keeping them as healthy as possible and knowing what their risk factors are? It may be something as simple as just giving them a refill one day early or having the pharmacist deliver the medicine to their house because they don't have a ride, right? Or just call them and say, you know what, I, I know you're going to be worried. This is what's going on. You can call if you need us. This is the number to call. Stay well. And that's enough to calm them down. I had a lady who had chest pain on Saturday. And she called the community person and said, have her send us a message. We called her and we kept her home. It wasn't a heart attack. She was having an anxiety attack, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> saved the whole cardiac workup because we know her and we can kind of walk through her symptoms and say, you know what, this is really what's going on with you. Let's walk with you and figure out how, how to help you calm down and kind of stay in touch. And then on Monday, we did a full virtual visit and she turned out to be okay, you know, but under other circumstances, she would have ended up in the hospital, admitted with the pain crisis that could have been avoided. And again, I think you're talking about sickle cell, which, you know, again, has its very, very specific issues. But I think what you're saying is applicable to all specialty. Absolutely. Yeah. You made the point that particularly in this point in time, when people with chronic conditions are stressed in so many ways, in terms of the social isolation, in terms of inappropriate diet, in terms of, you know, can they afford their medications? Can they get their medications? Are they taking their medications? All those things exacerbating it. This is a time when the patients need to be able to have a number or a way to reach, not some sort of general 1-800, you know, call the healthcare system, yes. but specifically their provider or the provider's team the people who know them. And so I was looking for a third recommendation, and I think you just gave it to us. Yes, because we found that before COVID-19, when the general telehealth case management people call my patients, they don't respond. Or they respond and they don't, they don't follow through. But when they get to know their own sickle cell case manager, and they hear her on the phone, and they see her number pop up, they respond all the time. And they listen to her and they follow through what she's recommended that they do. When I call the patients, they respond to their sickle cell provider. If it goes to the general person on call, it's usually not a positive response because they feel like you don't know me and the doctors don't know them, right? They're making it up as they go along pretty much, trying to read the charts and read between the lines. And it's never, it's, it's, it's cumbersome. It takes too long. 
it's not effective or efficient. But when their team, I mean, I've been here six and a half years, and I know some of these patients like the back of, I can, I know their children's names, their, you know, you know, their date of birth, you know, where they go to get their groceries, you know, which, what church they go to. You know, like I called one lady, I'm like, how's your daughter? You know, she wants to be a doctor. You know, when I get old, she's going to be my doctor. And just having that rapport sets the stage for them to be much more responsive to whatever you recommend. You know, and so I think that's an important piece that you cannot depersonalize healthcare to the point where there's no personal touch because people want human interaction that's personal. You know, you need to standardize things, yes, but to a certain degree, don't depersonalize it when you standardize. Because if you do that, then you lose the human touch effect that makes people connect with you and respond to what your recommendations are. So well said. Any sort of final words or comments or recommendations, you know, or thoughts that you could leave the audience with today? So I would like to leave the audience with the thought that after COVID-19, healthcare has to change. It has to be different. We have to leverage what we've learned from this pandemic leverage what we've been able to achieve with, you know, optimizing telemedicine and telehealth options with this pandemic and really change the way that healthcare is being delivered so that it actually meets the needs of the patients and is not, we're not trying to fit the patient and their needs into a box, which is healthcare in America. I think we need to redefine and reshape what this is, what this looks like for the long run. And really every healthcare um, interaction should address not just the physical both the social determinants and the psychosocial um, needs of the patient, because you're going to get the best outcomes that way. If you only focus on the science and the biology and forget about the psychosocial and social determinants, you will not achieve optimal health outcomes. And really look at each individual patient, yes, but also look at your population of patients, because everybody should get decent health care. It shouldn't be 5% of the patients get like Tesla care, and then the rest 95 get like, you know, flip-flop care. At least everyone should kind of get some level of standardized care that meets the basic needs of healthcare that they have. Did you say flip-flop care? <laughs> flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to clarify that. I don't want to make light of this, It's uh, although that was funny. But your message is so important. This is obviously a serious set of issues. I couldn't have said it better. What we're learning is there is no going back to normal. There's a new normal, and that new normal is probably going to change. And I think you know, to your point, we're really in a moment of scarcity and all the things that were existing before, I think they're just exacerbated now and probably will be for quite some time. We have to learn how to manage that. What's, what's bubbled up to the surface is there's a lot of chronic disease in America, a lot. And we're not preventing anything by doing, you know, band-aid care. We have to figure out a way to manage people in a holistic manner as a population based on their risk, as opposed to trying to treat symptoms and then kind of just keep them band-aided until they fall apart down the line. I think your message that if providers and if healthcare systems are essentially delivering care they were before this, that's a problem. Agreed. <laughs> Dr. Ify, again, I can't thank you enough. First of all, you're so much fun to talk with and the things you're doing, I think the recommendations you're making, what you've been doing naturally and are continuing to do, I think are the ways that other providers uh, across other specialties should be doing as well. And that's why I wanted to speak with you because I really want to share your message with other providers. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I will be reaching out to you because I want you to teach other doctors how to do the Zoom thing you're doing. No worries. I'm glad to help. Okay. Well, take care and have a great evening. You too, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
So folks, that was the interview I just recorded a couple of days ago with Dr. Ifi Osunka. As you heard, in addition to being a wonderful physician, uh, she also has a fun sense of humor. It was delightful to speak with her. Even amidst these dire circumstances, the human spirit can find humor. This may be one of our greatest strengths and forms of resilience, and it may be one of the best medicines we have at our disposal. I hope you've benefited from this podcast episode. My goal, as always, is to provide you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients. In these times especially, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is for individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourself and please share this podcast series with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.